So uh, tonight we're continuing the theme of dependent origination, and we're towards the end of that theme. Uh, we're on the last uh, three links, birth, old age, or aging, and death. And so tonight we'll talk about the birthing component of, of this. And uh, usually when we are thinking of birth, uh, certainly associated with spiritual journey, we think of the innocence, the rebirth of innocence, of coming back uh, to a kind of, of, of wonderment where we're seeing the world as if for the first time. Something like Christ saying, least we become like little children, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. We begin to realize that unless some of the sophisticated opinionation is released from the way we hold the world, that we are stuck within the world with just that as our particular uh, perspective. And that there needs to be some refreshing that goes on. That meditation or the spiritual work that we do has a point to it. It has to interface directly with our need to stabilize and fixate upon the world as being a particular way for us. Having ideas about it, all of that ideas and formulations and opinionations and knowledge, all of that fixes the world and it's the fixation of the world that keeps us away from the innocence. And uh, so at some point, the work that we do in meditation and in our spiritual journey has to have some inroads into that, it has to start thawing that fixed response out, has to start allowing a new adaptability, a new flexibility in, so that we're not just held to our old perspective, but begins to initiate uh, a new relationship with each and every, within each and every moment of our life. And so that's what we usually think of when we think of birth, and it's a beautiful way to, to sense, the, I call that the birth of the heart. And most of next year I will be talking about the birth of the heart for a new series. But we're still on the birth of the mind. And uh, we have to clean up the mess that we've already made. Uh, and so the birth that we're talking about in dependent origination is the birthing that continues on in the mind, not the birth of the heart. Now the birth of the mind, the birthing process of the mind is very different. In fact, it's the very thing that fixates itself. So when we use the mind to reestablish ourselves, that's a kind of birthing that we do. That reestablishment isn't once and then forever for forevermore, it's a continued process of locating, fixating, focusing, and holding. And all of that, you can feel the tension within what that requires as you try to keep a very shaky, changeable world fixated and steady and permanent and resistant to change uh, so that we will know it because we can only know something if we are assured of what it is. And so the more knowledge we base ourselves in, the more we can rest within that knowledge with some degree of certainty of what the world is. And of course, as we 
force the world to be what we want it to be, which is, again, a steady state theory, so too we fix ourselves within the world. You can't fix the world without fixing yourself. The, the person that holds the knowledge arises with the knowledge. So when I fix the world, I fix myself equally within it. Now, talking about the birth of the heart, it's, you can also see the loosening of that personal fixation when the wonderment comes back in, when the ease and flexibility and, and liquidity of the world begins to flow and the, the sense of innocence, some part of ourselves is freed within that. The egoic part of ourselves can't substantiate itself. It can't remember who it is when the world is not fixed. It needs the world to be precisely the same in order for me to know who I am and to have that secure footing. So you can really get a sense of the two paradigms that are operating within these two fixations, these two birthing processes. One, the fixation of the mind, in which the world has to be known to us. That's the way we can navigate it. That's the way we can venture forth with some degree of certainty. That's the way we can have self-prominence as the knower of things that other people don't know. And that's the way we can keep ourselves from any anxiety or terror within us. Uh, and as we release or become more relaxed within our spiritual journey, we begin to learn that the essence of the spiritual journey is to loosen that hold, that grip that the egoic self names and places upon all things. And accompanying that is some degree of, often, uh, some degree of anxiety because if you release the world or yourself within the world, or both, you're not sure what the world looks like, or will look like, or you will look like, or what part of you will survive all of that releasing and letting go. And so often, prior to it actually occurring, there's some anxiety about what that might look like when it does occur. And equally as often when someone experiences that transition, that movement, that, that flexibility of life to start becoming more what it always is before we, our mind fixated it, the, there may be moments of fear, but fear itself is, is, not, is not the main component of that transition. It has some, for many people, it has moments of, there are moments of fear, but if you steady your gait and just continue, that will lessen. And the reason it lessens is that the ego begins to see that where you're going is safe. It's only, it's a defense mechanism to keep you from moving into areas of unsafety. And so it thinks ahead of itself as to where you're going, comes up with ideas about where you're going won't be safe, and then creates terror within you to keep you from heading in that direction. You see? So with, if you're 
reasonably wise enough to know that that's going to happen, but not to lose your footing and just continue forth very gently, pulling back or resting, but just continuing the journey. Then the ego, which is accompanying that journey, begins to release, oh, this is safe, this is okay, this isn't something I need to be frightened about. And it loosens its need uh, to react, even as it itself is diminished. Because it was, a, it was a defense mechanism for the organism. It wasn't some hideous thing. It wasn't malevolent. You know, somebody, some, I don't know, possession that occurred to me on, when I was born. I, I was possessed with an ego. It was because we were afraid and we needed it. And as maturity, as we mature, which is really the emphasis of aging, which is the next talk, that what's that maturing process like, spiritual maturing? But as that maturing occurs, then wisdom becomes more, it becomes the lead, not the egoic, the egoic need of, of structure. And when wisdom leads, then uh, the egoic structure can release its need to, to protect. And that's, that's the way those two hearts begin to, to move. But the mental uh, birthing, the birth of the mind, is really the birth of the world as we know it to be. It's the birth of separation. As we know the world to be what it is, as we configure, as our minds configure the looking through the vantage point of memory and what I've known the world to be in the past so that I can only see what I've known the world to be through those, that kind of blinder, through those, those glasses, then it reestablishes itself as the person who is independent of the things it sees. And so if you're going to have an opinion about something, there needs to be someone who is having an opinion separate from the thing that you're investing with that idea and with that knowledge. And so the sense of me grows or is birthed along with that knowledge base, as I mentioned, but also the intrinsic way that we move separate from the objects that we know about is in the realm and in the paradigm of separation. We see separately. We see as if there were two things, at least two things, myself and the other object or many objects. That dualistic response comes from our need to be self-protected. And so that's an, a very important part of the spiritual journey is to understand that we have misperceived unity in order to protect ourselves and to have a sense of self-defense against the world as we expose ourselves to it. And so we need, in order to have that protection, a dualistic perspective of the world, myself and that which I'm afraid of, so that I can do something in relation to, to what I'm afraid of to protect myself from it. So you get a sense of why we've done this. It's nobody's doing it to us. It's not inevitable that we have to do it. It's what we have learned to do. And because we have learned to do it, we can unlearn that. But here's the problem, is that we're still afraid. We still have the disposition 
that we think the world's out to get us. It's much, the genetic disposition is, hasn't changed much in the two million years that our species has evolved. The world, when we were on the plains of the Serengeti and we were the least ferocious beast out there, we needed protection. And we carry that survival mechanism in our genes. And so we form ourselves around the need to survive. But in maturity, when we mature, we look around and say, what are we trying to, where's the, where's the enemy here? What's the enemy? How does that enemy sustain itself? Well, it sustains itself through my continually calling you or it an enemy. It isn't intrinsically an enemy. It's what I have invested in. It's the meaning I have given you that I react to you as an enemy. And so with that maturity, we can relax a little bit. We can relax a little bit. But here, here's another, here's another way that our paradigm sticks us, fixes us. And this is very clever. We are born in motion, in movement. That's what it means to be born out of wanting. As you remember, the dependent origination links, there are a whole series of links that went from the feelings of what an object is, the tone of pleasant or unpleasantness, and then the fixed response that we give, say, a pleasant object to want it, to, to reach out beyond what is present towards a future in which we can acquire that particular possess desired object, and then the clinging to that object as our, for our vitality, for our life, really, for we need it to survive. And we've, we've begun to think of certain relationships or material objects as, our, as the reason that we need to survive, the meaning that we give life itself. And all of that requires motion. It requires extraordinarily, an extraordinary amount of thinking. And thinking is the motion I'm talking about. It's the motion in time. When I'm desiring, the desired object isn't here or I wouldn't be desiring it. It's not here. It's in the future. So my mind has to travel, has to move to a memory of the past and project that memory into the future where it can be procured. So I have to first remember what I used to like and then project it into this situation so that I can get it uh, in a few minutes or whenever. And that sense of motion, this is very important. That sense of motion is the very uh, uh, foundation of our of the sense of me arising. I arrive, I arise from the resistance that I have to this moment because this moment doesn't contain my desired object. So I'm resisting this moment. In fact, I don't even care about this moment. Resistance is too mild. I have just 
dismiss this moment is meaningless because it's in the future where I really think my desired object lies that, I re that is the only frame of reference for me. And so I have traveled outside of this moment. So you can see how the antithesis of spiritual settledness or any spiritual fruit, since it has to come from this moment, in desire won't be there. When we're desiring, we simply are not placed properly. We aren't acknowledging the place where we are because we are too... Uh, we are too... Uh, we, we simply want the future. We don't care about the present. So we ju we're dismissing the present in order to get to some other, other time. That's what I mean by motion. Constantly in motion. This is never good enough. I'm never good enough. On and on that motion goes. But here's the subtlety of it. From that motion, although we get motion sickness, <laughs> we stop, stop uh, we feel the pain of constantly being in motion, constantly needing ourselves, uh, constantly looking ahead of ourselves for any satisfaction. At some point, that wears thin. So we get or decide that a spiritual journey is the cure to that motion. The problem is that we put ourselves in motion in order to procure the spiritual goal. Something's wrong with me. I've got to go somewhere, do something in order to get beyond my present disposition and acquire the spiritual fruit, which is peace, calm, tranquility, whatever I project it to be. So I stay in motion even in my spiritual journey. Well, the, if you stay within the paradigm of motion, you can be sure that you're going to accompany every frame of reference within that motion. And so you're constantly judging your spiritual journey, how you're doing, how close you are, where you've, you've been doing this for 10 years, how, I, how much have I advanced. All of that is carrying the egoic sense of ourselves along with our spiritual journey. And the spiritual journey doesn't work from that paradigm because it's that paradigm of motion that we're trying to get over in order to be truly settled. Does that make sense to you? We can't carry that paradigm along with us as the way we think, thinking that we are now being spiritual because we're carrying the seeds of our own deceit within that thinking. So it, it, it creates uh, confusion, to say the least, because we really try. We, we're sincere, we're well-meaning, and we're doing all the things that we think we need to do to get over ourselves or through ourselves to whatever we project as the other side of this misery. Okay, so that's one frame of reference as to how many people operate their spiritual journey. And you can see how frustrating over time it can become. And if people of that ilk would talk to each other, they would find a common thread of frustration. How are you doing? 
not so well. How are you doing? I'm not doing well either. We should have that kind of honesty with each other, shouldn't we? Because if we do, and we look at the, the success, there's not much of it. Yes, my life has been changing a little bit for the better, but there's still this, 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 and this, which there always will when you carry yourself along with you. Now, that's when maturity comes in. That's when we have to be, we have to shake ourselves into maturity. If, if I'm spending all my time in movement, and movement is the very root of dissatisfaction, said the Buddha in the Second Noble Truth, desire is the root of dissatisfaction, and I'm using that same movement of mine to establish my spiritual journey, something's wrong. That's in conflict. See, there's a spiritual logic that's every much as, as beautiful and as present as intellectual logic here. And you say, okay, so where, could, where, could there, I, where can I step out of motion? Well, there's only one place, isn't there? You don't have to look very far to find the fruit of spiritual journey. It's here. It's the present. The present holds the end of movement. The present holds the end of movement. I simply have to quit projecting life outside of the present as being better than the present and then chasing after that betterment at the expense of the present. The present is here. It's got to be here. It's my only salvation. Now we've cut through a tremendous amount of deceit. You still don't know what to do with the present. You're still moving slightly in the present, trying to do something with it to make it the... Uh, the heaven that you would like to see yourself within, but at least you've settled sufficiently to know that you can't go past futuring yourself into nirvana. And as I get quieter, something tremendously important begins to happen. I see that everything I have all the antagonists, all the discomforts, all the the states of mind which have been so uh, irritating, as I get quieter, become uh, less important. They're more vague. As long as I was in movement, I was making something very concrete out of those states of mind and running from them as if they were something. Because the movement assured I was moving because I was afraid they were something. And so I was imagining them to be something, and that's the reason I wanted to get out of myself, away from my discomfort, away from my discontentedness, away from my noisy mind, away from whatever it is that we're moving away from.
But as I steady myself and I just let the present be the present, those very states of mind which were driving me insane prior to this suddenly lose their substantiality. They, they, they become air-like, vacuous. Why? Because I'm not moving in relationship. I'm not reacting to them. I don't, I'm not using them as a reason, as a motivation to go somewhere else. And because I'm not reacting to them, then they can show me their true nature. Their true nature is that they're empty. Empty of any solidity, empty of any validity. Empty of what we thought them to be, which was all of what we were saying about them derived from our movement from them. You see, now we can be born in the moment. We can be born of the heart. Because the birth of the mind has ceased within that moment. We no longer want to be born outside of the present into the future as our salvation. We've seen that that just is tiring. It doesn't go anywhere. We get defeated time and time again. And we have to have an elaborate sense of, of, def of defenses in order for us to even attempt to keep going in movement, to make life worthwhile while we move constantly within it. It takes an enormous defense mechanism to blame, to rationalize, to protest, to all of that. See? But what about here? Where are you going? See, it's, that's how close it is. But we like the, we like the nobility of moving. Because, I mean, it's like that's what we do, especially in this culture. Everybody, you know, the average person stays in their house five years. Then they're gone. Let us say they have 50 years of adulthood. That's 10 moves, physical movements. We like movement, wonderlust. And it doesn't even, spiritual stopping doesn't, doesn't matter whether you're physically moving or not. You can stop even in movement. In physical movement. That's what walking meditation is. It's the art of stopping while physically moving. Did you know that? And sitting meditation is meant to do just that as well. So I find it very interesting. How does this sense of separation occur in us? How is it that when I look out of my brain, my eyes, from my brain, I see you 
as separate from me and objects separate from all very solid looking in form all very invested with a lot of meaning a lot of memory a lot of solidity it all looks very solid out there so what's happening this is to be the first part of this talk up until this point can be pretty theoretical but here's a practical way to see non-dualistically so that we can break the solidity of form and the separation we have of it apart. The first thing you have to understand or you have to ask is am I, do I have a mind that is, am I the possessor of my mind or am I an idea within the mind? Well, nobody, not very many of us are going to lower ourselves to being a mere idea in the mind. We're going to say with arrogance, I have a mind, right? Now I want you to see where that I is located. If you have a mind, where are you? Find yourself. You've just established yourself saying you have a mind. Okay, you know what the mind looks like. Where are you? You should be able to find yourself, shouldn't you? The fact that you can't begins to dawn on us that something else is occurring here. What's happening is that there's an idea of me that's arising simultaneously with the idea of the object. The sense data comes in, we either like it or we don't, we invest a whole bunch of memory into what we like or not, we turn away or approach depending upon whether we like it or not, and that is all coming into the mind simultaneously of the reaction we have to what it is that's being seen, smelled, heard, or felt. And then the idea of what it is coming from the memory we've had of it starts to speak back in there somewhere. Don't go, don't go that way. Last time I did that, you know, such and such happened. Okay, so we've got this voice in ourselves that's actually arising simultaneous to the data of what it is that we see. And somehow we think that that's outside of the data as it's arising. It's part of the mind. It's part of the data, the expression of the data. The, the verbal response to that data is occurring from the mind as a reaction to what it sees. Now that can be seen. You can just start very simply. Okay, if am I in the mind as an idea of the mind or do I have a mind? Well, I feel like I have a mind. Okay, so then where am I if I have a mind? Where am I located? Let me just find that person. I should be able to find that person. I can't find them. Okay, so let me see if I'm in the mind. If I can't find myself outside the mind, let me see if I'm in the mind. And you can start sensing that subjective 
conversation that we have about life simultaneous to the living of life. It's occurring simultaneously. But instead of taking that as the overarching view and truth of what life really is, it's just another input. It's the conversation from our past about the expression of this present moment. It's just thought. And look, wherever I look, I can't find anything more than, than what I am as being a mind state or thought. That's what I am. That's all there is up there. And so I get even quieter now. And as I begin to get quiet, I see that some experiences seem to be coming from outside of me, like the sights and sounds and smells and all that. But as I get quieter, I see that really no experience is coming outside of me. It's all being fabricated in here. The sound comes into the brain and then is, is dressed to fit what the mind thinks it is. And so all of this that's coming in is really not outside at all. It's being created inside. And I'm seeing that. In fact, when I look at any object, what do you see? But all you see is your memory of that. And whether you like it or not, or whether your ideas about it, it has formed itself into a nerve. So when I look at any object, all I see is the mind expressing itself. I don't see the object. I see the mind expressing itself around that object. And so now I'm wondering, you see, where does this sense of inside and outside, where, why is that happening? Why is that occurring? Why inside my skin, I say, is the internal response and external to my skin is the environmental response. Now, what is that true? And if I stop formulating the, the boundary between the outside and inside, if I just stop investing in a boundary being there, which is my one form of my sense of protection from the external world is to seal it off with an internal boundary. If I just release that for a moment, all things are arising in the moment. Inside and outside is indistinguishable. The thought and the car passing are indistinguishable. All of, it, all of it's being held. There are no distinguishing boundaries anywhere. And so now we have taken the present moment and really moved ourselves into a completely different disposition to it. Now we're beginning to sense the sacredness in the wordless 
and the boundarylessness of life. And we realize that the cantankerous argument that we've had about liking something or not liking something has all taken place inside the mind. It's fractured the mind, the part that doesn't like something, some input, some sensory input, some experience we're having. Those two hemispheres of the mind that have battled since time immemorial get quiet with one another. Now listen carefully. Those are the instructions we've always given for meditation. Is to bring those two hemispheres back to union. We say, don't judge what's going on. Don't judge what's going on means that you can't keep that rancor and argument going if you aren't judging it. Just see it. Add nothing to the experience. All of the instructions for meditation have as their purpose to stop this fracture of between the two hemispheres of the mind. The part that realizes what it sees and the part that disagrees with what it sees. Right? The person and the part that tries to be in movement with that person and to think and create a different scenario for itself, an imaginative one, where that person isn't there or life is more pleasant or whatever it is. So that rancor, that inward rancor begins to cease so that when an emotion comes up, we don't invite any argument with it. We just see it for what it is. And therefore, what happens is that the fissure, is that the divide between the two hemispheres ceases. when there isn't an argument between the two. Now all the boundaries were self-created. The boundaries were created from the need to move away or to protect myself from. But when I feel the grace of the moment, when I feel being held within the moment, the love of the moment, the caress of the moment, then my need to run or move anywhere else is gone. And you might say, well, what about the person who is malicious or has bad Intentions. What's going to save you from that? And I say, why don't seeing itself saves you from that? Seeing. Seeing isn't devoid of intelligence. Seeing isn't something that is confused. It's clear. And if there is danger, it gets out of the way. And if someone needs help, it moves into to supply and to support that person. It's a natural, effortless, and spontaneous action within awareness. But we don't trust awareness. We trust our movement. We trust our ideas about what we need to do in relationship to the harm that we see. 
And so that just continues to breed the instinct to continue to move. And as I mentioned, we try desperately to do that in our spiritual work. And it's extraordinarily important to realize that the sense of me is part of the very mind that we're watching, that is being watched. Because if you are outside the mind, with a mind, the owner of a mind, then your spiritual journey is going to look just like that. You're going to try to tame this thing that's out of control. You're trying to get the upper hand of it. You're going to try to cultivate certain qualities for it. You're going to empower yourself to be more powerful than it. And so there's going to be this tension of discipline or morality, which is the same thing. You're going to try to whip yourself into shape. You're going to do whatever is necessary to tame this thing. All from the wrong idea that the sense of you is outside the owner of the very mind itself. And every time you squeeze your effort in that direction, there's going to be more pain, more suffering, more struggle as you try to whip yourself into shape. And spirituality is understanding that the sense of you and the thing you're trying to whip in the sh into shape is exactly one and the same thing. So what do we need to do then if we can't struggle our way forward? We relax our way there. We drop the need to have a division at all between ourselves and that which we're trying to force to be different. We stop the subtle movement of thinking that there's something wrong with whatever the mind is doing and then trying to apply the fix, the cure. And when that division is dropped, there's a unified mind, a mind that is not divided against itself. And when the mind is unified, it looks whole. Again, in Christian speak, Christ said, be whole like your Father in heaven is whole. You see how it works? We have to live our realization. If we realize we're not outside the mind, then leave the mind alone. You have no effect on it whatsoever. Any protest just creates a greater division. Just release the need to do anything about yourself. What do you mean? Because it's so deep in our system that we need to take ourselves by the collar and straighten ourselves out. No, leave yourself alone. Leaving yourself alone does not mean free of observation. It means full of observation, full of conscious awareness. Because when there's no struggle, that's what non-struggle looks like. 
it looks like awareness. Not self-induced awareness. Awareness was kept from us because we kept ourselves in movement. You can't find awareness in the future. You can't find awareness in the past. The only place you can ever find it is in the non-moving present. And then it's everywhere. But if there's any movement, which means we don't like the present and we're looking forward to going somewhere else, then we're going to take our eyes and cast them away from awareness to where we want to go, which is not the present moment. But the holy grail of all spiritual journeys, stay forever awake, said Christ. Something is happening here in this church. <laughs> for the kingdom of God is at hand. Stay forever awake, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the whole story, really, isn't it? Okay, all. Can we just sit for a minute or two? Stay forever awake, forever awake. You see, where is wakeness forever? That's the question. If we're going to follow that, we're going to have, okay, so if I force myself to be awake, it's not forever. It's temporary. I'm awake and then I'm asleep. And then I'm awake again and then I'm asleep. And then I get frustrated because I'm asleep. I wake back up. That's not forever, is it? Where is wakefulness forever? Not from my making, which is my movement. Because when I'm asleep, I'm thinking, this is not satisfactory. I'm going somewhere that is. I'm going to go into the future where I can wake up. So now I'm awake. But there's so much tension associated with my waking up that I soon fall back to sleep again. And that's not satisfactory. And we keep ourselves jarring forward like we we put the accelerator to the floor and then we break. And then we put the accelerator to the floor and then we break. Where is wakefulness forever? Maybe it's the tactics and strategies we use that keep it from being forever. Maybe it's closer than we know. Okay, so we don't have a lot of time because we have uh, some very important announcements tonight, but I can entertain one or two questions, I think, if anyone would like to ask something. Okay, the question is from that wake space, 
how, what does it mean inclining the mind towards? Inclining the mind is setting the intention, really. It's setting an intention, isn't it? It's saying, okay, I don't see it. I don't see this awake space, but let me, let me not put anything in, in, in the way of it. And let me make it a very strong intention that I, that I find it, that, that it's known to, to me. Okay? So then with that intentionality and with the willingness to be quiet, not in, inclining the mind towards doesn't mean doing something mechanical or method, method, in method or in technique. It simply means establish the intention. Okay, I really want to know this. I'm, I'm inclining myself in that direction. I want to know what's, what that is. And then I have to be very quiet in myself to see if it's available to me or not. The other way I could do it is I'm inclining myself and I've got a journey to take on and I've got to figure out where this thing is because it's not in me. It's so obvious it's not in me. I've been a miserable person my whole life. How could it possibly, anything sacred be part of me? And so I've got a lot of penance to make up and on and on. Okay, that's one, that's what most of us do really. Or you can just be quiet and say, let me see. I want to know this. Instead of inclining my mind towards the forms or expressions of forms in the world, I'm inclining my mind towards the formless expression of awareness itself, the fulfillment of life. Not the partial satisfaction, which all form can ever give us is partial satisfaction. Because how can an object ever merge with a subject? It's only partial. You have to stay around it. You have to rub up against it. You have to like take your diamond ring and just go like this all the time or something. I don't know what you have to do. It's as close as you'll get as an experience of it. An experience is distant to it, isn't it? There's no fulfillment there. It's not integrated. It's not one. All I can ever do to life if I'm going to take, be the subject of it is experiencing it. Experiencing life is as close as I can ever get to life. Isn't that amazing? Because look how distant experiences are. You mean you have a feeling. You have whatever it is that's going on. And then it's gone. So I want something more satisfactory. I want to live life from the inside, not from the outside looking at it which is what an experience is, but from the inside so that you're actually the dynamic in which life arises. You see, we're all present moment beings. And if we surrender our need to go anywhere else, we will arise within the present moment as the present moment is arising because that's the truth of where we are at all times. That's the, the, that's the seat of our aliveness. That's where aliveness springs forth. That's, we look at our aliveness objectively as an experience. Oh, I'm alive, yeah. yeah I can feel myself be alive. But that's still, that's just a foot away, isn't it? What about entering aliveness? Entering aliveness. not as an objective experience. 
So how do you, how, how does this how does how does this how do we get over ourselves in order to to merge, right? How do we get over ourselves? That's 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 the age-old problem. That that is the spiritual problem. That's the, that is the spiritual question. What I'm trying to do is not take that question away because each one of us have to go on the journey of that self-discovery, but to show you the correct direction in order to undertake that so that it's as quick and as resolved as, as possible. If you go through it thinking of yourself as an object that needs a continual future necessary for the transformation that you're seeking, then you're going against the grain of, of the direction it needs to take, right? But if you say, okay, it's, first of all, you have to have some insight into the truth that you, the sense of you, and everything else is arising together in the mind. It's, I, I mean, I have lived with that fact for so long. It's, it's like, why don't you see that? That's like your coat's red. But I... It wasn't always like that for me, and many, for many years I, I didn't understand it. But if you're just quiet, you'll see where you, ta where you take reference has to be in the mind. I mean, that's all there is. You can dissect it all you want, and you're just going to find neurons firing. That's all you're ever going to find. And those neurons carry a certain message about you, and when they're all coordinated up here in the cerebral cortex, they come out as you. That's, but you're just a, we're just a, a series of ideas. And, and so it's just, I mean, if I could find anything else about me that wasn't an idea, well, then I could declare something. I would get the Nobel Prize, I'm sure. <laughs> so where do I take myself to be? Well, how about, I seem like I'm right. I'm, the, I'm looking. But if you look very carefully at the looking, you'll see a, a subjective response to the looking that has ideas about what it sees, which is mental activity. And so if I'm quieter yet, I can feel that mental activity as being where I am basing myself, where I, where, I'm, where I am claiming me to be. So now let me be quiet. Let me quiet that. I don't need to have an objective idea about everything. Let me just quiet that. And now I don't find myself anywhere. I'm not locatable. I have no coordinates. And what does the world look like from that? First of all, the mind is quiet, meaning it's not in contention with itself. And what does the world look like from a unified perspective of the lack of contention? It looks very different. Because there's no centeredness here, there's no circumference, there's no diameter between me and anything. A diameter requires a center to measure it from. And if, if the quiet removes the center, then you can see that the whole circle is nothing more than an expanse where everything is arising together. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs>